and I honestly think that there's some there's some choice for when souls choose to you know take physical form, and I obviously have nothing to back that other than my own you know spiritual investigations into the into the idea and talking to some other yeah. people who have as well. And I, I really feel like I'm one of them. Yeah, I re- exactly. And I really feel like we decided to come at this time because of this exact thing. Because we're here, absolutely, we're here to to stand when the world needs us perhaps the most it ever has, because the stakes are the highest. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today's guest is Aubrey Marcus, founder of Onnit, a lifestyle brand based on a holistic health philosophy he calls total human optimization. Aubrey is also the host of the Aubrey Marcus podcast and a New York Times bestselling author. Hi, everybody. Today, you're in for a real treat. My buddy, Aubrey Marcus, and I caught up on what's been going on in his life in the past few months since he stepped down as CEO of Onnit. We got into his growth experiences and mine through multiple partner relationships and how things have changed now that he'll soon be married. That's right. He's getting married. We also talked about his experiences in a darkness retreat, shared our views on the pandemic, and got into a deep discussion of God good, and evil in the world. I answered some deep questions for him, and we shared our perspectives on life. It's a deep, rich, insightful conversation, and I hope you all enjoy growing with us. Aubrey and I always have magical chemistry when we're together, so get ready for a rich, deep ride. Enjoy. All right, welcome everybody to Living 4D with Paul Check today. I'm super excited to share my buddy Aubrey Marcus, someone who I think is extremely cool, intelligent, and has a lot of wisdom and life experience to share. I think most of you know who Aubrey Marcus is. If you haven't, climb out from under your rock. <laughs> <laughs> Aubrey, thank you for joining me today, buddy. I miss you. Yeah, I miss you too, man. I can't wait to see the new place and uh, and hang out with you. Oh my God, I'm waiting for you. With uh, I'm, I just ordered the new speaker system you told me about too. So we'll we'll make sure we have some of the things you're used to at home. Oh <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love it. <laughs> yeah. So listen, um, it's been a while since we had a chance to talk and, and I hear through Kyle and others that, you know, a lot, a lot of things have been happening in your life. So, um, you know, and I know you've changed your working relationship with Onnit. Uh, can you share what inspired the change and uh, how your new way of living has impacted you? Yeah. You know, it, it's, um, I stepped down as CEO uh, from Onnit pretty much uh, just a couple weeks before COVID became a thing. So it was, it was interesting timing that uh, a lot of people were like, did you know it was coming? I was like, no, I didn't know it was coming. And I certainly uh-huh. wouldn't avoid a, a crisis. That's not the type of leader I am. Um, but I ended up stepping down a few weeks before that hit. And the reason why was simply that I recognized that I wasn't fulfilling the job of CEO anymore. I was holding the office and holding the title, but I wasn't doing the work. And that was creating a sense of dissonance within me where I felt guilty for not doing it. And I would try to get myself fired up to do it. I was like, I'm going to check all of our ad spend and every single ad that we're doing. I'm going to look at every piece of copy on the site. I'm going to go check, uh, you know, all the compliance records and all of the things that I'm going to go, you know, look under every rug and, and knock on every door and do that. And I just didn't have the real motivation to do that. I wasn't called to do it. And there was a time where I was and a time where I did that. And I just wasn't doing that anymore. So it only made sense for me to let somebody else hold that office and, and job who is actually going to do the work 
uh, of a CEO. And um, unfortunately, I had a great internal candidate who was actually operating as president of operations um, for quite a while, and that's Jason Havey. And he stepped in, and um, and I can honestly th- say that Onnit is better off with him as CEO and me as the founder, and um, kind of guiding inspiration for the for the brand um, rather than in the weeds of the day to day operations. Sounds to me like you came to the end of your soul's uh, quest for that type of knowledge and uh, experience. I'm wondering what was your soul calling you to that was the thing that your heart was more oriented toward than being the CEO? Yeah, I mean, I think my soul is calling me towards uh, the grand adventure. You know, like what is the what is the level of consciousness that I can reach? What is the the level of divinity embodied that I can reach, which is ultimately going to be translated as what is the thing that I'm able to offer by example to the world, right? Like, can I, can I demonstrate internally, physically, a sense of, you know, integral consciousness, a sense of love, a sense of, um, you know, seeing everything through the eyes of my soul. Can I offer that by embodying it? And I think that's really what I'm called to more than anything at this point. And, you know, there's a lot of ways that I'll translate that through books and through podcasts and through presence and handshakes and hugs and ceremonies and, any variety of things. But I think the grand adventure is like, let's see what I can claim in manifestation in this life. And, uh, and I think that's really what the rest of my life is going to be about other than, you know, some beautiful, you know, family and, and different things that are coming online in a, in another way. But those are all kind of supportive of that overall overarching theme of let's see what's capable for not only for me, but for everybody, because if I can do it, then absolutely anybody can do it. I'm just curious. I mean, I'm going to hit you with a sort of a a big question sideways here. What do you feel the purpose of life is in general? I mean, why do you think we're all here? (laughs) I think we're here to experience the articulation of every different aspect of being a human, right? I think we're here to have choice, to have free will, to have you know, at the point where we're completely divinely guided, it's almost like we lose the opportunity to play and have choice. We're just kind of moving, um, moving in the obvious, in the obvious way. But in this world of polarity where there's resistance, that's oftentimes equal or at least very close to equal to the voice of our consciousness, the voice of our soul. So there's this kind of contentious, um, place that we're in. I think we have the freedom and the, and the challenge to grow to explore, to experience a variety of different things. And I think that's, uh, that's why we're here is to experience all of it and to grow and to learn and to learn to recognize what we really care about and really find our way back ultimately on the long, long way home, find our way back to God. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting that you finished your, your sentence that way, because I'm curious, you know, there's a, probably the bigger percentage of the population has the idea in their head, largely from religious ideology, that God is uh, perfect, that God does not evolve, and that we are separate from God as almost like uh, some kind of a project that God started and God's just sitting there watching it like a video game maker looks at their own (laughs) video game and is so enamored. Um, My question is, do you feel that God is evolving as we evolve, or do you feel that God is somehow outside of creation? It's interesting. I mean, I think God is all creation. So if we're evolving 
then in some aspect, then God is evolving as well um, because the articulations are. But then you have to recognize there may be an infinite amount of beings that are at an infinite amounts of evolution. So in totality, you might say that there is a completeness of God in which God is not evolving because God is always everything and there's no everything plus one. There's just everything. Um, so it's, it's interesting. It's, I think it just depends on how what your frame is to really analyze that. But it's a great question and, uh, and one worthy of pondering because as we are representative and absolutely inclusive in the divine and we are evolving, so, so therefore God is evolving. I've often thought that the mood of all of mankind, like all of our feelings, is the mood of God. You know, but that's also looking at the frame that's very earth centric and human centric. Like, I don't know how many, you know, life forms and beings are out there. So maybe the mood of God is partly comprised of earth and partly comprised of, I don't know, whatever star system that uh, other beings are coming from or evolved in, whether they've contacted us or not. I can only hypothesize that there's infinite opportunities for life in the, in the universe. So I think it just depends on how you really look at it. And um, I would probably, air on the side of there's you know infinite articulations and god is the inclusion of all of those infinite articulations and therefore god is in is complete and not and not, it's not particularly possible for god to evolve but um i'd love to hear your thoughts on it honestly well you know this is something i meditate on deeply and have long conversations with the soul and you know the soul in my model is god embodied if there's no God, there cannot be a soul because a soul is consciousness within. It's Aubrey's soul that is a unique expression of God or the divine, and Paul's soul is a unique expression of God or the divine, as is every being, embodied or otherwise, any point of consciousness. So if you think of God as, a, as an ocean, an infinite, uh, eternal ocean, you know, surely you've been sitting next to a river and saw all of a sudden an eddy will pop up or there will be multiple eddies. You've seen that, right? Yep. So if you think of that eddy as a vortex of energy and information, you can say, look at that eddy there. You can point at it. You could even throw some, uh, you know, some colored dye in it and you'd have a swirl of red or blue or purple and you could throw dye in another one. And all of a sudden you'd have this bouquet of almost like flowers in different eddies, but they're all part of the same cosmic flow. They're all expressions of the divine ocean. And, you know, one of my favorite descriptions of God, which is, is uh, you know, based on sacred geometry, is that God is a sphere whose center is everywhere and circumference nowhere. So when you think of that model, if God's center is everywhere, then any point of consciousness or sentience is in a feedback loop, just like whatever's happening in any eddy in the river or the ocean is actually an experience within the eddy or the ocean. I tell my students, for example, if you go to an Olympic-sized swimming pool and you throw a tiny pebble into the water at any given point, is there any point in the pool where the other water molecules are not influenced by the action anywhere else in the pool. And most people, you know, intelligently respond, no, you can't affect one part of the pool without the whole pool or every water molecule being affected by it. So one of the ways I try to explain this to people is that anytime we're evolving, because, 
you see, part of the problem with religion and various ideologies that creates this concept of separation from God is that that would mean you could throw something into the pool and the other molecules wouldn't know about it. But because consciousness is non-local, it's everywhere and nowhere simultaneously, yet it's involved in every possible act of information flow and energy flow. Anytime Aubrey evolves or Paul evolves or, a, or a, you know, a species evolves or we make a choice because God is pure potential and in David Bohm's model, the implicate order is seeded with all potential possibilities. Anytime we make a choice or have an experience, God is making that choice and having that experience. But as unconditional love, God has no capacity to say no because that creates conditions and therefore, it would be God saying no to an experience, which would suggest that there's something God doesn't want to experience or is afraid of experiencing, which doesn't make any sense from the perspective of that for which there is no other experiencing itself. Because if God is God, there's nothing for God to experience but that which is it or within it. So my feeling is, from a mathematical perspective, if God is a zero, which is absolutely everything and no thing simultaneously. And you look at research, you know, piles of research on cosmology, which really basically says that everything in the created universe, either, even thought forms, are basically energy and information. So they're all waves of information. And so there you have the particle wave duality, for example, in quantum physics. But if you take a sine wave, you draw a horizontal line, which represents zero, you draw the positive cycle upward and the negative cycle downward. So you have what looks like a circle split in half. Does that make sense to you what I'm yeah. saying? Mm -hmm. Okay. So God would be the point of emergence of the sine wave. And then when the positive crosses through the midpoint, it would be at the zero point and then it would go to the negative cycle. The negative cycle would represent the implicate. The positive cycle would represent the explicate or the expression. But at any point, where there is an intersection to the zero point, all the information and experience is being recorded in and as now. Therefore, God is reconciled at any given moment in time, space, or space-time as zero. And I believe from my own investigations into quantum information processing that the reality of God is that God can zip the entire amount of information not only in the universe, but in, in, in any number of multiverses, because they're all part of the same source, to zero. So if you look at, for example, information, in your lifetime, you've probably noticed that flash drives and hard drives can carry more and more information, and that we can zip bigger and bigger files to smaller and smaller amounts of information, correct? Mm. And But that's still so, not even using quantum computing. It's still using right. like, you know, binary yeah, that's, computing. Right. And all I'm saying is if we're doing that at our level of processing, then that which is the intelligence behind all certainly could zip it down to zero, which would basically mean it was an implicate order or a state of pure potential. So I think the reconciliation of energy and information always equals zero. But within that, is the zip file that contains all the information and all the experiences within source that informs it as to what it is. So 
zero is always zero. But because all the energy and information can be zipped down to zero, it looks to the observer like nothing's changing because you can't measure zero. Just like in Taoism, you, you, Wu Qi, which means not Qi, which is the functional antagonist to Tai Chi or life or existence, being, it would be Tai Chi and non-being would be Wu Qi. But I was speaking to a, a very skilled scientist um, actually, I was talking to Amit Goswami about this, and I said, well, what do, what's your feeling of the concept of Wu Qi? Because Wu Qi in Taoism would be the functional equivalent of the absolute God. And he said, well, I believe in it, but there's nothing we can know about it because it's immeasurable. Mm. So there we come to the neat little paradox that we can't really know what God knows or what God is experiencing at the point of reconciliation because the information is so vast, it's immeasurable, and it zips so down, it's immeasurable. Therefore, what we can experience is our experience. And as the world changes, we change. And we all know from science of mind that we're all connected in the one mind. So even though Aubrey's in Austin, Texas, and Paul's in Fallbrook, California, Whatever's happening in Aubrey's life is accessible to all of us, which is why guys like Paul Selig and, and uh, channelers and mystics can access any information. Right. Yeah. So hopefully and that makes sense. That's one of the reasons why I love talking to you, Paul, is, uh, is it really kind of uh, you really go deep into these topics. And uh, I know that you do this on your own and just sit and meditate with things and really think through them. And, um, you know, it's great to talk to another philosopher and, and, uh, and someone who's exploring this. And, to me, what really this illuminated is it's almost like God is a black, a black canvas of infinite potentiality and quantum possibility. And by our actions, we're coloring with actual color, the color of our, of our doing, the doingness and the beingness of who we are. We're coloring a section of the potentiality through our choice and through our, through what we're able to claim and actually bringing things into manifest, which is then expanding the manifest reality of God's expression, which is new and unique, whereas God might be infinite in its potentiality, we're actually claiming something in the positive side of, of articulation and, and manifest what's actually happening. And so in that way, we're expanding like at least one side. We may not be able to expand the possibility side of God because he, or not he, but God is able to express as any possibility. It's all possibility, but we're, right. we're actually coloring the actuality, you know, like of, of that duality. And, uh, and so in that way we are expanding and evolving, um, evolving the divine. And, uh, I love thinking of it that way. Yeah. And I think that's the, one of the key features of that concept is instead of God being out there, it puts us in the seat of being co-creators. Yeah, for sure. You know, Aubrey has the paintbrush 24 seven. Paul has the paintbrush the microorganisms have their own little paintbrush. Everybody's, everybody's working on that canvas you spoke about, and the canvas is God, and the, the color is God, and the expression is God. And um, one of the things that brings to my mind in my research in quantum physics, a, a very deep quantum physicist is a man named Fred Hoyle. Are you familiar with Fred Hoyle? No, I'm not. Okay, well, Fred Hoyle is it, 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 a genius, and he basically mathematically demonstrate very soundly 
that the entire universe and every sentient being in it is in a perpetual instantaneous feedback loop with the universe itself and that every experience we're having, it's having, and every experience it's having, we're having. So basically, Fred Hoyle showed mathematically, and he drew a beautiful diagram, he drew a capital U, and on either side of the U, you know, the vertical uprights of the U, he put a face. So you can see when I'm looking at Aubrey, and Aubrey's looking at Paul, it's actually the universe looking at itself. Yep. Hi, everybody. If you'd like to add real certified organic nutrition to your diet that's fast and easy to use and nutritious, there's no better place to start than with Organifi. Organifi offers a wide variety of excellent, good-tasting, easy-to-prepare superfoods, protein powders, and drinks that my family, friends, and clients use regularly and love. You can taste and feel the nutrition right away, and I know you're going to love Organifi's great products. To get your 20% discount, Go to Organifi, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com, and on checkout, use the code capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K, 20. To get to know Drew Canoli, the founder of Organifi, listen to my Living 4D podcast, number 64, Drew Canoli UBU. I think you're going to love Drew, and you'll see why our values are so aligned. Enjoy. And there's an old saying by the aboriginals, stars are the campfires of our ancestors. And I I really love that because it really brings to point the fact that from the ancestor, from the Aboriginal point of view, that consciousness, and it goes hand in hand with Alan Watts, who says the universe is a peopling universe. And he doesn't necessarily mean the anthropocentric concept of a human being, but it means the universe produces sentient beings that experience each other and interact with each other so that it can experience itself. And I think that there's a lot of really beautiful truths and depths in a lot of the mythologies that turn out to go hand in hand with what quantum physics is teaching us. That's the, that's the convergence of the world that we're in now where things are, things are starting to make sense from ancient wisdom to modern scientific thinking. And I don't think the bridge has been completely built yet, but it, it certainly seems like we're getting closer and closer the more that the more that we progress in our scientific understanding of the world. Yeah, I find it I actually find it like orgasmic too. You know, one of the reasons that I spend so much time in meditation and Tai Chi and ceremony and reading books by the greatest minds I can get my hands on is because I love to explore all the ways intelligent people from mystics to scientists to uh, alchemists to housewives to, you know, you you can get some really illuminated. I've met some people like cleaners, you know, and like our, our gardener here, he's this real simple Mexican man, but he's always happy and he smiles. And I, when I first met him, I said to the girls, I said, you know, that man is enlightened and he doesn't even know it, but he's <laughs> truly enlightened. He doesn't have a concept for that. Yeah. But, you know, so I, I love to just be a witness to it all. And it brings me into a deeper relationship with my soul. And so then my soul will, 
I'll ask a question and my soul might say, okay, you want to see how a star works? Let's go have a look, you know? And so I'll go on these amazing inner astral experiences where I learn all these things and often paint them and write comprehensive notes. And of course, I love adding some plant medicines in to enhance the uh, vision and the experience uh, from time to time. But I probably say I do 90, 95% of my investigations just uh, with me and a bag of tobacco uh, <laughs> and, and s- some dream. I use uh, a tea called dream tea, uh, which is really great for enhancing inner vision. And I use uh, Dr. Nick's uh, essential oil called third eye, which I find super helpful for enhancing my inner vision and various flower essences. But I just, I find that the explorations bring, you know, when I look at my children, I see more in them. When I talk to you or Kyle or smell the flowers or listen to someone like Thich Nhat Hanh or the Dalai Lama, you know, I find the deeper I go into my own exploration, the more love, beauty, and um, just amazing things I see in everything from stones to, uh, you know, to to bugs, to people, you know, it's like, I'm sitting at our pool and my little boy says, dad, look at that dragonfly. And it's this beautiful big dragonfly. And I'm like, you know, you got to just be, I think people have gotten so flat that they walk right past the dragonflies, the flowers. And I think a lot of this stuff we're talking about and all this religious programming has left people thinking that somehow they're separate from the world and, and they've lost touch with the magic and the mystery of it all. And the ability for them to actually have direct knowledge, to have gnosis, to have an understanding of something without going to a book and reading it in an encyclopedia and finding all of these constructs of what a thing is without actually experiencing it. Like you can read about a bear all you want, but until you sit down and actually encounter a bear in the wild, you have no fucking idea what a bear is, right? Like there's no energetic exchange. There's no direct experience for you to understand a thing. You know, it's like having someone describe an avocado to you, you know, great, it's squishy, it's green, it's a fruit, but it doesn't taste like a fruit. You don't know an avocado until you put one in your mouth, until you have guacamole. And I think that's the, that's a beautiful part about the path of direct knowledge is sure, you can read about it and understand, you know, all the things as well. But until you experience that thing directly in the manner that you're talking about, where you're with eyes open, with heart open, with your soul vision, looking and experiencing and touching and feeling the essence of something, you know, you really don't know that thing. And, you know, even uh, that was one thing that I noticed when I did my six days in isolation and darkness and silence, um, which was an incredibly powerful journey. The thing that I missed the most was not the sight of things. You know, people always think, oh, did you miss seeing things? Well, because I could see so many things with my third eye. I could see anything I wanted. I saw the most beautiful landscapes I can ever imagine. And I could see people's faces. I could see all kinds of things. What I missed was the essence of things, the, like the direct experience of being with a tree or being with a person or being with a dog or being with, you know, whatever, whatever was out there in the world. You miss that thing, that intangible quality. And I think people underestimate the importance of the intangible. Um, we can, we can be distracted by facsimiles of everything, you know, a picture of our friends or a, you know, a, a, a Zoom call or something like that. But that's not the same thing as the actual essence of a being or the essence of a dragonfly or the essence of, you know, a sunset. Yeah, no question, you know, and 
I think, you know, if you look at Gene Gebser's model of consciousness, uh, we're, we're really heavily in the mental stage of, of uh, consciousness, which is really, as you know, heavily based on ideas and concepts. But we've gotten so, shall we say, academic and intellectual in our way of relating to life that we are dangerously mistaking the idea for the experience. And the way I kind of drive this home to my students, I say, okay, go back to the time when you'd not had sex yet. I hand you a book. It's called God Sex or something. And it's supposed to be the ultimate manual of how to have sex. You read the book. So now I have a question for you. Did reading the book actually improve your ability to have sex or did it cause you to end up with a bunch of ideas and procedures that you tried to apply to your partner at the expense of actually connecting to, looking at, into their eyes, breathing them, feeling them, and moving with them in a dance with no known outcome, no known directive, and allowing yourself to be guided in the intimate experience of love. And everybody agrees, well, the book would probably actually be a hindrance. And I say, well, now think about that with the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> because when you have that orgasm, you're going to go, oh, my God, that was way different than the book said. <laughs> yeah, you have no clue. You really have no clue. <laughs> and it's also, I think, one of the – you've mentioned religion so many times, and it's the same with God. You know, like you read about God, you have no idea. It's impossible but you ex directly experience the divine or at least experience the experience of the divine, which is a distinction that Ramdas makes. And, but either way you get closer to a direct knowing of what the divine is that you can't even approximate in a book. It's hard enough even to describe it when someone is talking to you, who's actually been there and felt it. It's almost like, well, I, I mean, I could talk to you about it all, all, all I want, but it's not going to make any difference until you yourself experience that thing. And I think, that's one of the reasons why these great plants and animal teachers, whether it's the the bufo, the frog, or the toad, or the or the plants, or whatever, whatever way that can help you get there, or if just a you know amazing experience that you've had um, in meditation or or some other situation spontaneously, like however you find your way there, um, the direct experience is going to completely radically change everything, and then you won't be so dependent upon the books. Maybe you'll find some references that make sense like in the sufi poetry or some other place and you'll be like oh yeah now i know what that means but until you felt it you don't even know what anybody's talking about like even reading rumi you don't know what he means by the great beloved you know you haven't you haven't felt it you know it's funny because i just wrote a note <laughs> as you were talking i wrote rumi and I wanted to quote something for you from Rumi and <laughs> for the listeners. So I'm we're dancing, baby, as usual. Whenever you and I get together, it, the juice just flows all by itself. Maybe next time you come back as as a woman, or or one of us takes the other sex, or even the same sex, and we can just get it on. <laughs> Let's go. Um, Rumi says, "No man can get to God until he becomes a heretic." And what is a heretic? Somebody that goes against the fundamental formal teachings of a religion. Rumi says, God is not in words written on paper. God is an experience. So until you actually depart from reading books and have your own experience, which is what Gnosticism is really about, and Jesus, people don't realize, was a Gnostic, 
Gnostics were people that didn't sit and read books. They got together and shared the experiences that they were having and how they came about those experiences and offered other people to try them with them, usually sitting around a campfire at night. And so I think where a lot of people get religiously confused is they think reading hymns and being preached at is somehow the experience of God, but really all it is is an intellectualization. And the danger of that is you you risk believing that shit. Yeah, yeah that's the, uh, and I think the history of the world is written by people who've fallen into that trap of whether it was fear or whether it was greed or whether it was power or whether it was the identification of the ego or some misplaced sense of tribalism, whatever the, whatever the reason that people ascribed to a belief that was in a book rather than a direct experiential belief, that's been the history of, of humankind. And it's, uh, it's too bad because even the word God carries the baggage of all of the misinterpretations and the misappropriations of what that is. Same with the word soul. Um, so I think it's now, you know, as we emerge into this kind of new epoch, I think it's, it's time to clean those words off by direct experience, by understanding and having, you know, every single person who has that experience of the divine then can just scrub and pull a few barnacles off that giant, giant whale of a word. And so that the world can start to understand it so we can use these words meaningfully again. And I think that's one yeah. of the, that was one of the intentions of that that first podcast of the or maybe it was the first or the second I can't remember where we went through and started defining words. It was just the yeah, it was the first one. Yeah, the enterprise of trying to clean off some of these terms um, so that we could actually communicate with each other in a way that made sense. And uh, and I think that's really what what all of us philosophers and explorers are, are really doing fundamentally is just allowing. Uh, cleaning off the words, hoping that, that we can um, kind of purify the meaning based on direct experience. You know, Jung has a beautiful statement. I don't know if you ever heard it before, but I'll share it with you and the listeners because it's profound. He says, intellectualism is a common cover-up for fear of direct experience. And then he goes on to say, usually the more references an author cites, the less direct experience they have. That's why they have to cite everybody else's opinions. If they were grounded in their own experience, they wouldn't need to validate it through other people's opinions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So uh, just to, this has been fun, by the way, I always love talking to I you. I love and, talking to you too. Yeah. Um, you know, um, I did a great interview with uh, you and Kyle Kingsbury on multiple partner uh, relationships, as you know, and, and and that's really woke a lot of people up. I've had thousands of comments on that one and people going, oh, my God, that blew my mind. But I've heard you've been through some learning and growth experiences since then and recently recently got married. So I wanted to say congratulations. I, I want you to send me a picture of this beautiful woman because I, I want to see who you've partnered with. The, the uh the Paul check in me wants to say, okay, what flower did Aubrey find so beautiful that he had to, to uh, entangle himself in love and beauty with, with this being. But I'm curious, you know, it's been a while since we did that. You've had a lot of experiences. I'd love to know where are you at now with the whole process and all the experiences you've had and how does that play out in your new um, partnership? I'm just so incredibly grateful for the experience I had in polyamory. I think it taught me a lot. 
And, and really, if I go back to the beginning, it was based upon a fundamental understanding of love that I didn't believe love meant that you needed to possess anything, that love was like the sun it shone on everything. And it wasn't, it, it didn't try to claim or own or possess. And that's what I found in a lot of the monogamy constructs. It was more about a contractual obligation to a person and in a, a limitation of, of physical pleasure. And it just didn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, and being who I am, I created a situation where everything was fair is fair. If I'm going to experience things with other people, then my partner's going to experience things with other people, dramatically underestimating how difficult that would be for me. And so through that process, I really learned an immense amount about my ego, immense amount about my desire for validation, my you know needs for perfection and competition and all of these different things were just really thrown right in my face. And I had to, and I had to really reconcile and deal with all of these aspects of myself. And in the same, in the same regard, I was also free to continue to explore. So uh, my fiance is someone I've known for uh, four and a half years, met her at Burning Man. And even though we, it took us a long time to actually clear our partnerships up and experience a, a relationship together, which moved extraordinarily fast when that happened, um, we were still free to be able to hang out and share experiences and spend time because of the the nature of the construct. So this leads me to the two great reasons for polyamory. One is to learn about yourself. And I think there's it's an amazing tool to learn about yourself, learn about your ego, learn about your jealousy, you know, practice communication, emotional processing, all of these things. It is one of the the most powerful learning tools. And then the other is if you're not quite sure that you're with the person that you want to be forever, but you want to continue to explore and you're open to it. And, you know, you don't want to limit yourself to the potentiality of meeting somebody along the way. So both of those, I think, are good reasons um, for this path. And uh, I'm grateful that I was that I did it. I didn't know I was doing it for those reasons. Um, I thought I was doing it for other reasons. But I think in hindsight, those are the really important uh, two reasons to engage in it. And it's possible that it that it can exist, you know, in certain boundaries and certain structures, um, you know, beyond that. But for me, that's what this kind of wide open, free ranging polyamory uh, with no no real boundaries and no container other than absolute radical freedom. Um, that's the reason I think for that. And then for me, understanding now that I'm now that I'm engaged and you know entering uh, a version of monogamy to say the least, you know, it's, it's different though, in that it doesn't feel like it's contractually obligated. It feels like it's a choice that we're going to both be making every day because we feel like that choice is going to be the most virtuous path for us moving forward. And it's, uh, obviously if we decide someday that we don't want to make that choice anymore, it's a conversation. And both of us have had experience with polyamory, so it wouldn't be, you know, something that we wouldn't be able to talk about, but, as long as we make that choice and that's our sadhana, that's our sadhana, um, then at the point that that's our spiritual practice to choose and to choose each other and to choose love and to choose sacred union and to choose the collapse of two individual eyes into a we in which both people's pleasure, both people's joy, both people's mission, you know, are separate but the same in that we're, we're like one two-headed organism. Um, I think that's the thing that's really exciting for me. And with that, you know, it's like the collapse of the collapsing two people into one, which isn't codependency. It's still two sovereign beings, but we're so aligned in our mission and so aligned in our love for each other 
that idea is actually kind of a gateway. It's kind of a lever for me to really explore what it's like to collapse myself into the oneness with all people and all things, you know, really looking through the eyes of the soul. And that's, I think, what's going to be the most productive path for me to learn and going all the way back to initially what I was talking about, like seeing what I can claim in this life and in this human form. If I can practice collapsing my own separation and my own uh, distinctness into, into union with another being, at least one other being, then perhaps I can really explore what it's like to collapse that into unicity with all beings, like true integral, integral consciousness. Hi, everybody. I found Paleo Valley and totally fell in love with their awesome whole food products. Most people don't realize it, but eating meat without including organ meats does not provide a full spectrum of nutrition, which your body needs. Their freeze-dried blend of grass-fed organs is world-class. Paleo Valley created their grass-fed organ complex to make getting a full spectrum of traditional superfoods loaded with nutrients into your body faster, easier, and without having to tolerate the taste or even cooking for that matter. Paleo Valley's grass-fed organ complex contains not one but three organs from healthy grass-fed pasture-raised cows, so you are getting a more diverse array of nutrients. Most other similar products only contain one, usually liver, and it's spray-dried at high temperatures. The ideal way to maintain fragile nutrients and enzymes found in organ meats is to eat them raw. Again, not ideal for most people. So instead, Paleo Valley gently freeze-dries the organs in order to preserve as many of these nutrients as possible. Paleo Valley has excellent beef and turkey sticks, helpful supplements, and their website is loaded with great articles, podcasts, recipes, and more. Go to paleovalley.com to get your 15% Living 4D discount. Use the code CHECK15, all small case, that's C-H-E-K-15 on checkout. The whole family will be satiated, nourished, and glad you did. Well, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's fun for me to hear this because uh, in our interview on the topic, I, I talked about, you know, how multiple partner relationships often end up in people drilling 30-foot wells, but the water table's often at 300 feet, and that's where the real experience is, but it takes real spiritual commitment and discipline to grow through the challenges that the ego and the follies of the ego throw in front of us. And I remember at the time you said, yeah, but there's nothing wrong with having fun drilling 30 foot wells. And it's just lovely to hear that you're now following the uh, older man's uh, lead and going to, because I want to keep chatting, you know, and see, okay, Robbery, where you at now? How deep is the well? And what did you do when you, when you ran into some, you know, rock ledges, did you have to change drill bits? You know, Uh, did you get the air hammer out? how did you work through it? Or did you become water and dissolve the rock? Because, you know, as you know, I've been through, you know, a lot of this stuff. I've been, you know, in multiple partner relationships for a very, very long time and had many, many of these experiences. And and I found, you know, that for me, I reached the point where I just felt that for me to do the work that I that I'm here to do and to have the stability I need in my life, that the more lives I got involved in, it was almost like as a, a, an analogy would be a, an extra hundred emails every day or more texts or more people wanting this or money or help uh, heal this or heal that. Or, and I found that I was just getting 
divided and 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 I found that I was losing the time and the space I needed to love myself enough to really fill my cup up so that I had something to share. And I realized, you know, I have such a deep love and respect for Penny, who, you know, I've been married to for 23 years that I could feel that it was harder for me to really be present with her needs. And she's, you know, my lightning rod. She, she's my, my, the keel on my sailboat. And so as I matured and, and it ultimately great spirit brought me into this union experience with Angie, which then, as you know, Penny engaged with us and said, you know, let's give it a try. Um, I found that, you know, that now I'm eight years into this with Angie. We have two kids, as you know, and, and uh, there's, there's a lot of beautiful experiences and I've, I've now got the stability in my life and I'm, I'm so fully satiated that, Yes, I see beautiful women and yes, my male hormones go, boy, I would love to just, <laughs> you know, I would love to be the dragon that yeah. <laughs> consumes that beautiful flower. And and then I say, okay, there's the younger man in me. And yes, you know, the just remember, no matter how beautiful the, the surface is, it doesn't tell you anything about the software you're going to encounter in there. And, uh, you know, I've had the experience of women coming and beginning to seem so beautiful and magical and perfect but then you realize that you have software clashes or they get upset because you're too focused on your work and they want more time and you know the list goes on i know you know exactly what i'm talking about but one of the things that i experienced that i that i i think you probably potentially experienced too is that there's when you really have a deep deep connection to somebody and that sense of true soul connection, soulmate partnership, and that your mission, vision, and values are aligned. There's a real, there's a part, I find at least in me, there's a part of me that that uh, leans towards, um, uh, you know, the, the only word I could say is that I can find myself feeling the urge for monogamy because I love this person so much, I don't want to detract from the depth of the experience by dividing my time. But when you have two wives, it really puts you into a situation where you have to really carefully evaluate your own mental programming, your own mental structure, your cultural belief systems, and even your capacity for love. And And I found myself in intimate situations where I, I feel, wow, you know, I love Angie so much. And then I start kind of getting lost in that. And then I say, wait a minute, you know, Penny, she's the one that's giving me all this. I, I, I owe her so much. She's the greatest woman I've ever had in my whole life. She's given me more freedom. And then I have to remind myself that my obligation is to both of these women. And no matter what that monogamous urges, I, I have to be honest with my commitments. And then I find myself sometimes falling back into this, okay, I really need to be monogamous with Penny. I feel this obligation and urge. And then I say, wait a minute, you got two kids and you're really in love with this other one. And so, as you say, you know, it's, you know, as Rumi says, love is a fire and it transforms everything. And it, it, uh, it, 
it can turn your idea structure, your ego structure, your everything completely and utterly inside out. Um, I, I know for a fact that if I wasn't at the age I was when I met Angie, I think I was, I was 50 when I met her. If I wasn't at that level of maturity and hadn't lived through all the experiences that I had, this relationship wouldn't work because, you know, as I say to my students, it's not a good idea to try to ride two horses until you can ride one really well or you're likely to get split in half. If I hadn't learned to ride one horse extremely well, I would not be capable of maintaining balance and my own center and the level of commitment necessary to keep nurture and equanimity and harmony in uh, a relationship with two women. So it's, it's really, uh, wow, it's such a powerful, deep spiritual experience. And I'm wondering, have you ever found that sense of monogamy emerging while you also felt committed to other people and then had to sort of go into a deep form of processing to reconcile and figure it all out? Uh, you know, honestly, I, I haven't. Um, there's certainly been periods where I felt myself drawn to an individual, but I was so kind of, um, I was really used to the, to the kind of the baser pleasures of variety of novelty of different experiences with different people. And so I was like a hummingbird that was getting nectar from multiple flowers rather than sitting with one flower and, and waiting for the continual flow of nectar to emerge from that same flower. I was just kind of flitting about, um, you know, for, and oftentimes these were long, long-term lovers, but I would continue to rotate and, and touch them, you know, more lightly, uh, from an emotional standpoint of like, you know, diving in, not that I wouldn't go deep, but I wouldn't stay that long. And, and that mm -hmm. was really my MO. And so this is, this is vastly different in that, you know, I'm committing to, a lifetime with one individual. And I, I'm aware that it comes with certain sacrifices and I've had to, you know, reconcile this idea of being a hummingbird rather than being, you know, a, a gardener tending, tending that one particular flower and continually being yeah. nourishing and watering that thing. But it's really, you know, for me, it's looking at the other options, you know, the emotional entanglement with any other any other being, just how close I feel, how in love I am, how much I worship uh, the person that I'm with. And it's, it's just a different thing. Everything else feels like while it could be some kind of fun, casual experience, it's not something that is worth bringing in the, the weight and the challenge of integrating it into the relationship. For what reason? It's just so, it's so unimportant for what it would give to me. And I understand because I've been there and I've sat in the other side and I understand what it's like. And I could imagine what it would be like if my fiance now wanted to just have casual sex with somebody, even though I was in it for six years and I could deal with it, it's still heavy. And so it's like, it is. it's the cost, the, the cost benefit is just way out of, way out of alignment. You know, my benefit to having some kind of casual experience with somebody is very small and the cost borne by the union is great. And so it just doesn't, it doesn't even make sense from a pragmatic standpoint um, at this point, as well as just the, you know, as it said, the value of that commitment and the value of that choice, um, just purely pragmatically. It's like, yeah, this, this is a, this is a clear no. You know, uh, it's lovely. I mean, 
I, I must say it's it's amazing for me because I don't know how many years it's been since you and I first connected and met, and that was when we did our first podcast. But I've watched you grow so much, man. Um, and I have the skill as a therapist and the knowledge of life to to recognize the growth. You know, I'm not, you know, somebody that doesn't know what they're looking at. So um, I can assure you, from as a skilled therapist that looks works with these issues every day that you have grown one hell of a lot oh, in the time you, I've known you. And, you know, I think one of the differences between me and you is I was married for 17 years to my first wife and Paul Jr. is 40 now. So my first, and she was my first girlfriend, uh, my first real intimate lover, you know? So I think I came from a grounding in a deep, intimate, uh, monogamous relationship and it wasn't the a lack of love for her that took us apart. It was simply that her needs and what she wanted in a partner were in conflict with the mission that I was on this planet to do, which was to uh, grow the Czech Institute and share my knowledge and the fruits of my life experience with the world, which which is a, a very, very significant commitment. And um so when I realized I could not be who I came to the world to be and be the man that she needed to feel satiated and satisfied, that's when I realized I needed to go explore and be with multiple women and really kind of get the childhood, teenage years that I didn't get because we basically fell in love and, and she got pregnant and I devoted 17 years to her. So it's a different reference point, but you know, from a spiritual perspective, if God is God, then any point of consciousness is connected to all other points of consciousness. And what I've found through my life experience in relationship is that the deeper you go into a partner, such as your partner, I thought you had gotten married. I don't know how I got confused. Did you get married or no? Not yet, but it's coming soon. <laughs> it's going to come. Yeah. It's going to come really quick. Yeah, good. Well, you see, so when you make that sacred union and you go deep and deep and deep and deeper, I find that you find everybody inside of each of us. Somewhere inside of Aubrey is Paul Check. Somewhere inside of Paul Check is Aubrey. Somewhere inside of Penny is Angie. Somewhere inside of Angie is Penny. Somewhere inside of every one of us is a lunatic. Is a is a, a passionate lover. Is a uh, is everything. I mean, I don't want to use all the words that would scare people, but you know, when I know from doing my own shadow work and really doing honest, deep shadow work. I can find Adolf Hitler in me. I can find Donald Trump in me. I can find the gay person, the cross-dresser. And I can bring those into the light and acknowledge that they're there and appreciate that that's as much God as anything else that other people may, may not reconcile as God. They may find that the devil. I can even find the devil in me. In fact, some of my most profound inner explorations have been with Satan and and profound conversations and wrestling matches with Satan and and really you know like I must say Satan's a clever son of a bitch <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yes indeed but do you understand my point I'm saying yep. that when you go deep enough into a relationship in some way you come in contact with all the other partners that you had or 
could have had. And you get to learn how to adapt and be the partner and make the life changes and the growth experiences that that aspect of that person's personality or soul carries to the table. And it really does take a lot of commitment and spiritual courage to grow through all the stages that a relationship brings us through. Relationship is probably the greatest teacher because the stakes in some regard are the highest because they have the greatest access to the tenderest parts of our psyche, our ego. I mean, you would you would be inclined to say your heart. It just depends on how you define your heart, whether that's your center of centers, your connection to the divine, in which case, you know, it's not you can't break it or you can't hurt your heart actually. But either way, however you want to define that as the part of your ego that is in your chest that hurts, you know, or the your need for validation, your need for love through a specific source. But irregardless, that relationship is going to give somebody access to that, the most tender parts of you and the most vulnerable parts of you and also the parts of you that have the opportunity to heal the most or hurt the most. And so the stakes are the highest. And when the stakes are the highest, you have the opportunity to grow the most. And, um, you know, I, and I think people don't really look at relationships in that way. Like every relationship is an opportunity for growth. And so polyamory, it's an opportunity for growth. Monogamy is an opportunity for growth. People just kind of look at it like, oh yeah, this is what we're going to do. But they don't really frame it in a way like, all right, what are, what are we doing this for? And what is the purpose of our soul? What is the purpose of our existence? Is it to expand? Is it to grow? Or is it to be comfortable and find a, a place that I can, you know, or a person that I can use as a living sex toy to help me with my ejaculate? You know, it, it's, it's very like limited and reductive what people typically look at a relationship like. And I think, you know, there's a, a much greater opportunity when you expand it to be like, all right, this is a construct and a human being that's a lever to help me understand love, help me grow, help me learn. And when you look at it that way, I think it would shift your partner selection pretty dramatically. Yeah. It's true. And, you know, I think one of the deeper truths of love that's very profound is that love cannot exist without relationship. It's impossible. Um, You know, even if you said, well, I love myself, there's no relationship there. I say, okay, look at your hand and tell me what you're looking at. You'd say my hand. And I would say, well, who is in possession of the hand then? You're using a possessive, Mm -hmm. my body, my hand. So you need to look carefully at who is the subject that is claiming the hand is the object of its possession. So the point of the the matter is love is the flow of energy and information through empathic and compassionate connection to self or other. And if there is no other, i.e. subject-object relationship, there is no flow of energy and information, therefore there is no experience. So ultimately, love boils down to relationship. It is the catalyst by which love is experienced. And the unity of God carries the duality that allows love to exist within itself, which quite simply is the negative, the empty aspect of zero, the implicate order in David Bohm's model, the potential for all possibilities, expressing itself through the explicate, or in Taoism, the yang, And therefore, you see that there's a constant interplay between these complementary opposites, which moves energy and information. And the Tai Chi symbol really is the symbol of love itself. And life itself is love. 
And life is nothing if it's not relationships. Yep, that's what we're here for. I mean, this is the you know this is the split, the articulation of of God in many different forms, and we're here to experience all these different forms, all of the different human forms, which are the most intricate and interesting, perhaps all the animal forms, all the plant forms, all the rock and mineral forms, all of these forms. You know, the fact that we have hands that can pick up a rock, lips that can kiss our lover, a mouth that can taste of food. You know. Uh, hormones like oxytocin that can be triggered when we look in our dog's eye and and touch it and it's wiggling its tail like all of these things are here for us to experience and uh that's the fucking beauty you ask you know why are we here well that's it it's for relationships with everything subject object relationships with the world that are not possible if the divine was just content being all possibility which is unicity it's a homogenized realm of quantum void and not articulating and expressing itself well that's kind of fucking boring <laughs> you know like this yeah. is this is way more interesting absolutely many people suffer the discomfort of bloating and being gassy after eating though we may not be bothered by our own farts many other people don't find them so enjoyable and having gas while you're making love can really kill the ambiance The first thing I recommend to help people heal their challenges with bloating and gas is quality digestive enzymes and top-notch probiotics. And no company makes better enzymes, probiotics, and digestive support supplementation than Bioptimizers. Bioptimizers products are at the cutting edge of health science and ideal for supporting your digestion, metabolism, assimilation, and elimination. That means you get more from your food supplements, more from your food, you heal faster and perform better. Bioptimizers enzymes also aid recovery from training, and their Capex enzymes also naturally stimulate your metabolism. Living 4D with Paul Check listeners get a huge 26% discount on the upgraded digestion package consisting of four great Bioptimizers products that I use myself. Go to B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash number four capital D capital L. That's bioptimizers.com forward slash number four, capital D, capital L. And on checkout, use the code CHECK10, all caps, capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K, 10, to get your discount on any product. I hope you enjoy Bioptimizers. I really do love them and use them every day, and I've had nothing but excellent feedback. Enjoy. And, you know, when a lot of times people will ask me in classes or, you know, podcasts or lectures, they'll say, well, what is your religion? And I say the closest I can get to defining anything that I would call my religion is the first principle of Sufism, which says there is no God but God. I worship everything and everyone. And when you realize what God is and that this is God embodied, then there is nothing that isn't worthy of love from the stone to the microorganism to the stars to the guy that drives you crazy or you know the the axe murderer and the pedophile because god's not afraid to experience all its potentials and god has no fear of death and god has all the time in the universe to work it all out so i really you know if 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 my religion was anything it's probably encapsulated in that first principle of Sufism.
Mm. Let me ask you a question that's really prescient for the times right now. Um, there's been some horrific, horrific videos that have come around. Um, Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, watching really the the worst expression of of humanity and in in these kind of violent and racist acts. When you look at that, it's obviously going to naturally cause a certain amount of outrage and certainly understandable. But you know, what is the what is your take on on the way that this gets resolved? Because you know, I understand that all of these feelings of outrage are absolutely natural and normal. Um, but it's it's interesting, you know, just looking at if you're trying to stop hate with hate. I don't know if that's going to be the most effective way to deal with this kind of endemic situation that we have going on. Yeah. You know, this is sort of the same question. That, uh, if, you know, a lot of people, atheists say that, well, how can you believe in God if God allows pedophiles, rape, murder, war, genocide, etc.? And, um, you know, so right there, it, it, it goes back to the Christian ideology that splits God and the devil. And many religions create this duality. Yeah. Like Zoroastrianism. Exactly. And Manichaeism and all sorts of them. Um, even Buddha, when he spent his time under the Bodhi tree, he came face to face with Mara, the great tempter, which would be in Christian language, the devil. Jesus went into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights and had to confront Beeslebub, which is the devil. And so because, you know, I'm trying to find a way to say a complex thing in, in simple language, but uh, look, if you, if you look at reality, I'll ask you a question. Could we have free will if we did not have the potential to act toward good, harmony, unity, and love, or into individual accumulation, um, self-aggrandizement, and hate and violence. If you didn't have the polarity opportunity to go either way, could you possibly have free will? No. And that's, the, and that's really, I think, another big purpose of why we're here in this polarity is to have choice. And to have choice, the game can't be rigged. You know, it, it has to be it has to be a fair game where you could choose both sides. And the other thing is, if God is omnipotent, omniscient and all knowing, then God is the omni of all experiences. Therefore, God's as invested in the dark as as God is invested in the light. And the only way a, a unity can experience itself is by creating consciousness, which requires a duality. This is why I love Edinger's definition of consciousness. He says, consciousness is a psychic substance, meaning it's real, produced not blindly, but in living awareness of opposites. God cannot be conscious of what God is without a duality. And because God cannot die and has no fear of death and can only know itself, one definition of God is that for which there is no other. And Lao Tzu says, the Tao all things have their back to the mother, which means there's nothing behind God. The only place for God to have an experience is within itself. And when you look at what is the basic, the most basic elements that, re that are required for consciousness, you come to two things, light and dark. Well, evil is associated with darkness and 
good is associated with light. You know, saints have a halo around their head. They don't have a dark circle around their head. And you could say evil is really the darkness. So in actuality, for God to actually know its own potentials, it lives them out. Because just like I quoted Jung, intellectualism is a cover-up for fear of direct experience. If God just wrote books about its potentials, it would still be afraid of its own experience. And I think we have to remember something kind of profound. When we see these acts of violence and we see these things that hurt our heart and we see child abuse or all the things that trigger us, those are the things that remind us how important love is. Mm. Those are the things that remind us what beauty is. Those are the things that educate us and inform us as to why we do not behave that way towards ourselves and others. But if we did not have these reminders, it would be very easy to become passive and all of a sudden become unconscious of the fact that you're being destructive to others and you're being disrespectful and not loving, but you wouldn't have enough conscious polarity to awaken you to the fact and one of the examples I give is if you read the story of Adam and Eve, they didn't even know they were naked until they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were with God in the metaphorical heaven, but they were so unconscious that they didn't even know they were naked. So once they entered into the duality of polarity, now good and evil became living things. They had to make a choice, which the snake offered them to make. But who is the snake? God. Who is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? God. Who is the unity behind the duality? God. But the fact of the matter is the unity contains the duality within it. That's why when our, we talked about the devil, I said, if there's no mind, there's no devil. But if you look at James Jeans, the famous British astronomer, after many, many years of very comprehensive analysis of the universe as an astronomer, quantum physicist, and mathematician, he stated clearly, the universe begins to look more like a great thought than a collection of matter on closer investigation, in paraphrase. Hmm. It, right? It's, so It's such a paradox, though. You know, I mean, the, the paradox being that you can recognize that the perpetrators of these things are God and that their free will to act upon this is part of the rules of the game and everything that you, you know, everything that you said, and then still be compelled to go out and fight against that thing, which is an articulation of the divine, because that's our choice as in our own free will to try and stop and cease these acts from actually occurring and to help educate people so that they're not unwillingly you know, kind of compelled to be acting upon their evil impulses, which I agree all of us have inside of us to a certain degree. There's no aspect of ourself that is separate from every aspect of another, another person. And I think you articulated that really well earlier in this podcast, but it's just this interesting thing of like, all right, you have to recognize the humanness and the divine, even in the one we hate the most, you know, and, and watching these videos, you hate them the most, you know, just because it's so, shocking to see this and actually played out you know it's very odd to see things that that are really happening not a movie but really happening on 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 video um you see that and you can recognize that 
but it's just difficult to reconcile because we all want to do something, but at the same time, we have to recognize the the humanness, the worthiness of love as all things are worthy of love, even the most despicable and, 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 you know, violent amongst us, still worthy of love, still divine. And it's just this kind of interesting paradox of how you, how you deal with these things that we want to fight against and change, but also recognize in some ways the the necessity and the and the ability for that to also claim love and divinity um and that's i think i think it's an issue with our entire penal system and our entire our tile our entire worldview about judgment punishment action you know it's uh it's interesting to kind of examine that from a philosophical standpoint it is and you you can also there's a few points that that I will share with you that you triggered me to share because I think that they they could be clarifying for people. And um you know a lot of people get upset hearing me talk like this or people like me and you talk like this because they have a very immature view of what God is and what life is and so they they're highly polarized because they're not well-developed philosophically or spiritually or haven't encountered the darkness within themselves, so they project it out onto others and onto the world uh, without realizing that it's sitting right inside of them. You know, If you want to know where the movie's coming from, it's coming from within the projector. You're seeing it on the screen, so it creates the illusion the movie's in front of you, but it's actually being projected out of the projector and as you know, our own inner state and our own inner values and judgments very significantly influence everything we see. And as we grow spiritually, the same things that once repelled us, now we can look at through the eyes of love. And it bring, reminds me of the old saying that you probably have heard it before. And it says, when a, saint, when a pickpocket sees a saint, he only sees his pocket. But when a saint sees a pickpocket, he sees God. Hmm. When a wow. saint sees when a saint sees the violence you're talking about, he has nothing but more love and empathy and compassion because he realizes that part of God is in pain and is in, is is confused and needs more love. But everybody wants to kill these people and lock them up. And in Osho's lectures, he made this point very clearly. He says, you know, if you look at psychopaths and you study them, and I've looked at research on this, something like ninety eight or ninety nine percent of all murderers, rapists, pedophiles, people put in jail when investigated were found to have very painful, dysfunctional childhoods. So they're actually expressing and projecting their own pain and confusion into the world because they don't know how to deal with their pain. They don't know how to relate. And they're only emulating the experiences that they had, which is the same way we all get programmed. But some of us were brought into the world by more loving parents that taught us to see a different thing. So Osho says in one of his lectures, he says, in actual fact, if you want to be honest, you would have to lock up the parents of everybody in jail because they're largely the ones that program these people. And then you'd have to lock up their grandparents and their grandparents. And he said, if you were honest with it, everybody would be in jail. Yep. Yeah, that's the uh, that's the interesting thing. It just exp- it expands this idea of, you know, the culpability being focused on the individual when it's in it's really an endemic to the level of consciousness of the collective in general that that people have siloed themselves from this kind of universal understanding of humanity of 
the nature of every life being worthy of the same, you know, opportunities and care and respect, you know, and, and all of these things that just haven't touched certain areas. And, um, and it's, to me, I think the response needs to be like, this, this is just the downstream effect of the source, the wellspring, which is a real serious lack of consciousness and direct experience with the divine of, of that sense of unicity where you can look out at anybody or anything and see, you know, see everything in that thing, you know, see as the saint sees the pickpocket and sees God, like that's the thing that everybody is missing. You know, they'll be distracted by skin color or distracted by this thing or, or whatever cover or whatever action, but really it's to see the divine and everything. And that's, that's the the source of all of these problems. And so you can try to, you know, whack-a-mole the experiences and maybe that's productive. And I'm not saying it's not productive to whack-a-mole and lock people up and whatever. We have to do what we have to do. A pedophile who's continually going to be a pedophile, unless we have another treatment option, well, we better lock them up and we better keep them away from people. Otherwise, they're going to do more harm. But I, you know, ultimately, we need to find ways to heal trauma, ways to alter consciousness so that these, because these things are just going to keep coming up and we can't just whack-a-mole them all down forever. Like we got to stop it at the source. Well, if we spent even 2% of what we spend nationally on our military budget, we could create the most profound healing program that's ever been on the planet. And we could do all sorts of amazing things, but we keep on focusing on making money, not making more love and making the world a safer place. I mean, look at 5G technology, military technology. I mean, the list is so freaking long. It's just that we actually, and this is why it is said, money is the root of all evil. We've we've come to create a capitalist society that has organized itself with the concept that success equals the accumulation of money and power. And all the way back in the 1700s, the man who was uh, sort of touted as the first real economist, Adam Smith, in his biography said, one thing he learned for sure is that no corporation should ever be allowed to be part of government because in every instance of his experience where large business men got together, they were trying to figure out how to manipulate people to get more money out of them with no real moral concern for the effects of getting the money. And so what I'm saying is we have the money to clean up the environment. We have the money to make the world a much more healthy and sta more stable place. We have the money to create a legitimate medical system. We have the money to create a legitimate education system. We have the money to create the most profound healing system in the world for challenged people and prisoners. But we're too busy inventing more ways to make more money, which requires the manipulation of people and the sacrificing and trespassing of their rights as individuals, such as predatory lending and the long, long list of things. And that is our shadow manifest. And that's what I think leads to one of my other questions. But I think that's what the whole COVID crisis is showing us is that we're at a time now, you know, 2020 for me numerologically means there's two elements to consciousness. And the external part of ourselves that we project, the persona that we project is backed by the internal aspects of ourselves, which is where the shadow lies. And when you look at the number 2020, zero is God. So two, zero, our external self, what we project, 
meeting two zero, our internal self, are now coming face to face in the divine mirror. So I've always told my students, 2020 is the year where we're going to see all the ugliness of ourselves and be given an opportunity to decide, are we going to continue to live this way? Or are we going to actually come into harmony with each other in the earth and make changes? And if you look at the Hopi prophecy, I think we're right now at the point where the Hopi prophecy says, if we don't start healing and come back to deep connection with the earth, we're going to destroy ourselves. And on the Hopi map, the trail comes to a dead end. But if we reconcile and get clear on what really matters and realize that if God is God, that we're all expressions of God and that we're all expressions of the planet, we all need food, we all need water, we all need air, we all need space. And if we start seeing ourselves as a one world community, and instead of putting imaginary lines on paper and dividing the earth and fighting over those lines and and all this sick nationalism. And we just said, oh, right, there's two freaking billion people on this planet right now that don't have food, water, or a pot to piss in or a place to lay their own bed. And they need our help. And we have the money to feed those people. We have the money to educate those people. Hi, everybody. I'm super excited to tell you about an amazing product from Symbiotica called Synergy B12 with Fulvic Minerals. This product promotes cardiovascular health, aids detoxification, and enhances cellular energy. And it's unlike any other B12 product out there. And I brought Sherveen in to tell us the particulars so you can realize how high-tech, cool, and totally synergistic this is with your body. Paul, this is the most advanced B12 product available on the open market today. That's final. Nothing even comes close. We used, again, our micelle technology, which guarantees maximum absorption, making these vital nutrients permeable and absorbable, even if you have gut issues. We have both forms of B12 in here methylcobalamin and adenosylcobalamin. Both are critically important for many, many health factors within the body. We also have extracted fulvic minerals to give it a biocharge. All vitamins need minerals to perpetuate it and to make it absorbable. Mm -hmm. So it gives it that jing, that energy. We also have L-methylfolate. This is extremely important. A lot of people might have the MTHFR gene mutation and not even know it. This comes in there like a silver bullet and allows your body and gives your body the energy needed to detoxify cellular energy, power, awareness. All of these things are encapsulated within that micelle delivery system. That's awesome. Get over to C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. And use the code capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K, 15 for your 15% discount, not only on Synergy B12 with Fulvic Minerals, but on all the amazing Symbiotica products. Can't wait to hear your feedback. I love this stuff or I wouldn't share it with you. Enjoy. We spent more money, so much more money on this whole quarantine, lockdown, stimulus, all that. The, the World Bank estimates, I did some research, the World Bank estimates that it would cost about $150 billion to get clean water and sanitation for the whole world and about yep. $250 billion to get you know stable food supplies for the whole world. And there's a little bit of upkeep yep. there yearly. But nonetheless, so you could talk about $400 billion plus maybe another $20 billion in yearly upkeep. 
which would obviously expand the GDP because then infrastructure would be put in place. People would be able to offer different things. So it would actually come back to the world economy anyways, if we looked at it from a holistic standpoint. But that's at minimum, you know, like one twelfth of what we're spending just on COVID stimulus. And then we're talking saving 15 million lives a year at minimum, you know, and it's just kind of crazy to me that we're not talking about this. Like, okay, we can spend three, four, five, ten trillion in cost on this particular thing that we're all so scared of. Or we could just have, I don't know, clean water, unlimited food supply, maybe some concern about how to shut down nuclear plants safely so we don't have repeated Fukushima's when there's a natural disaster. Or maybe we actually look at the possibility of what are we going to do if there's an asteroid that's going to come and wipe us all out. You know what I mean? Like, it's just fucking crazy to me that we have all of these resources available, but we don't do shit until we're actually personally scared that this virus is going to come in and get us sick. And fear never makes a good seeing eye dog. I mean, that's a bad time to get creative and make decisions. It's, you know, it's, it's freaking ridiculous. And if you, you know, if you look at that Donald Trump gave a $2 trillion stimulus package, my first reaction is what would have happened if Donald Trump would have invested $2 trillion into holistic health, education, supporting organic farms, rehabbing the soil, rehabbing the school system and educating people on actually how to live, take care of themselves have healthy relationships on nonviolent communication so that we actually had a just legal system. We had healthy political systems and we didn't manipulate, lie and cheat. And it's, it's like, it's unfucking believable, but you know, the, the nature of human beings is they have to take everything to the point where it's creating so much pain. They have no option. But as I said, that's a terrible time to access your creativity. So what you end up doing is looking for um, a quick fix band-aid. Well, what people forget is Donald Trump didn't give you $2 trillion. He gave it to you on a loan and you're going to be paying it back. Yeah. So you're going to actually have less income every month and you're going to have to work harder and burn yourself out even more. And all the while they're going to fucking vaccinate you and chip you so they can track you constantly and what, you know, if you want to look at a real threat, I saw research that said we have enough nuclear weapons worldwide to destroy the planet 179 times over. We should make, okay, we should good. make more. I don't think that's enough. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What? Like, well, that's real fucking genius. So we're worried about a goddamn virus, which may not even be nearly the threat that everybody's purporting it to be, which I don't think it is. Yet we've got nut jobs like Donald Trump with access to weapons that can destroy the entire fucking planet. And if anyone releases one of those, the other guy's going to hit the doomsday button and say, okay, well, we're going to give you the same. And that's going to be the end of the whole fucking thing. <laughs> so we need some of these crazy motherfuckers that we vote into goddamn political positions of power and we need to put them in the love school and we need to realize we are voting psychopaths into leadership, which is the manifestation of our shadow in physical form. And I say, as scary as it is, at least the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. And now maybe we should all get together, hold hands and do some real honest shadow work together and say, what are we really creating here? 
look into our crystal ball and say, if this keeps going on for another three, five, and 10 years, even if you don't give a shit about yourself, the question I ask every day is, what are my children going to face? When Aubrey has children, what is he going to have to prepare them for? And can he even conceive of what he's going to have to prepare them for with the number of levels of absolute fucking craziness going on? Yeah, it's really... uh you know, it's, it's really, this is the time. And I, and I honestly think that there's some, there's some choice for when souls choose to, you know, take physical form. And I obviously have nothing to back that other than my own, you know, spiritual investigations into the, into the idea and talking to some other people who have as well. And I I really feel like I'm one of them. Yeah, exactly. And I really feel like we decided to come at this time because of this exact thing, because we're here, Absolutely, we're here to, to stand when the world needs us perhaps the most it ever has because the stakes are the highest and sure there's been difficult times in human history but the ability for us to actually come together as as one world now based on the communications and travel and information and and everything that's accessible and also our ability to destroy each other is at unparalleled levels and destroy the earth is at unparalleled levels so this is the time and i think this is where you know a lot of us have this is why we've come and this is why our children will come is they'll come ready for whatever whatever challenges and perils that are ahead and i think it's just adopting that warrior mentality of like all right i'm here i'm here to be in the shit you know and a lot of people i know talk about all the ways to get out of the shit and i'm never one of those like i don't i don't have a a crazy bunker place somewhere where i'm just going to ride it out and let the world go to hell I'm just far more inclined to be like, all right, I'm going to stay right where I am and I'm going to just raise my voice the loudest and do everything I can. And, you know, if I, if I cross that threshold and go to the, you know, go back to the great mystery, so be it. But, you know, I, I, I can't, Absolutely. I can't leave the world to its own devices. That's not what I'm here for. I'm here to, I'm here to stand and, and be heard. Well, choosing not to choose is choosing. Yeah, right? exactly. Period. I mean, I I have students in my class that go, well, what if I decide to just do nothing? I'm like, okay, I'll give you a good example of the power of doing nothing. When your mortgage bill comes in, do nothing. <laughs> when your electrical bill comes in, do nothing. When your car bill comes in, do nothing. I give you 90 days before you have nothing. Yeah. And you will realize doing nothing is a powerful choice. There's a profound quote from Jung I want to share. If you haven't heard it, I think you'll dig it. Jung says, no man is fully alive until he has the power to destroy himself. Wow. And if you analyze that, it's bang on. And here we all are. So right now, we should all be fucking dancing with life (laughs) because we have more than enough power to destroy ourselves. We can do it individually with drugs, with automobiles with uh, violence uh i mean we all are saddling the power of complete and utter destruction and when you're walking that tightrope if if you're not alive you you haven't even been born yet you're living some kind of a weird ass dream so the reality of it is is we're all walking right now between a polarity gap that's so strong between the wise and the foolish, between the wealthy and the poor, between the lovers and the fighters, that whenever you have the bigger the polarity differential, the more potential you have. The reality of it is that these huge polarity differentials produce 
very rich life experiences. And I'm in the same boat as you. I mean, I, I, I tell people, look, I made sure when I came to this planet, I live fully. I've rode it, fucked it, <laughs> climbed it. You yeah. know, I've, yeah, right. So uh, like, I'm not a guy that is going to die wishing he had lived. I've really got into it. And I've said to people, look, I've already lived. So if you guys want to die together doing stupid shit, like eating poison and blasting <laughs> the piss out of each other, I'll go with you. I, I, I'm not afraid of death. I've been down that pipe, man. <laughs> You know, I've been so deep. I've been so deep in medicine journeys that I honestly didn't know if I was alive or dead or how I was going to get home. <laughs> and and so I already know what that experience is like. I mean, I've had con multi-day concussions where I was having NDEs and whatever, racing motorcycles. So the whole concept of death to me is just a great big fucking rest. No problem. I could use a good sleep. <laughs> You know, sometimes the show just gets to be a little monotonous after a while. But, you know, what really brought me back into the game was was my children. You know, and now that I got a four year old and a 10 month old baby that I love with every fiber of my being, I'm like, OK, you know, God put these kids in my life to remind me that I'm here as a, a guardian of life and a, and a, um, a steward of love and relationship. Because those are the only things that really make life meaningful at the end, you know? So I, I just say, hey, you know, it's a great show. I mean, fuck, you know, it, it reminds me of one time when Paramahansa Yogananda was giving a lecture, and I've shared this before on my podcast, so forgive me for being redundant, but it's, it's a, it really brings the point up. I think it was one of Yogananda's first big lectures here in the United States. It was like 1938 or something. I think he was in Boston. There was like 13,000 people in this huge uh, auditorium or something. And, uh, he was talking about the fact that God is love. And some guy got really pissed off and just stood up and started barking at him and cut him off and said, how in the world can you say God is love with all the mayhem in the world, the destruction, the violence, whatever. And Yogananda just paused and let him rattle and then smiled at him. He said, sir, do you like watching movies? And the guy said, yes, I do. He said, do you like a little shoot 'em up now and then? And the man said, yes. He says, do you like a little plot twist now and then? And the man said, yes. He said, how about a little steamy sex? And the man said, yes. And Yogananda smiled and said, so does God. <laughs> <laughs> yep. This is, I really feel like this is the, I mean, I don't know. I, I You can hypothesize like another another race of beings on another planet that's more evolved and and this kind of, I really feel like humans, I don't think they have it better than us. I think humans are in the sweet spot. We have the ability to access some of the highest states of consciousness, but also access to some of the most visceral and interesting and rich base undertones of what, what our sensual experience is here. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't trade being a human for anything. I think this is, the, hey. I think this is the shit. No question. I mean, look, if you take what you just said, I'll give it to you in two other perspectives. If you are an artist, it means you have an infinite palette of colors from the darkest of the dark to the most vibrant of the vibrant. If you're a musician, it means your keyboard goes forever to the left and forever to the right. <laughs> and the only thing limiting you is your imagination. Yeah. Right. If you're an angel, you're way over on the right side of the keyboard and you're only in the high tones of the colors. You got to go to see Satan to get the dark shit. 
Yeah. Right. So what did God do? He said, let me just take an angel and a devil and mix them together and we'll call it human. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Devil horns and angel wings. You know, that's, that's yeah, the human exactly. experience. And there's the dance. I mean, it, you know, and that's what amazes me. People, when people don't really pay attention to what's going on in the world and to the magnificence of it all, then they get into this sort of flat existence and they get bored. I'm like, how do you get fucking bored on this planet? Honestly, if you are bored, then you have a personal internal problem and that's where your focus should be. And therefore you shouldn't be bored at all because you've got to figure out how it is that it took an entire universe to make you. Yogananda says, if you realized how many souls were waiting for bodies, you would celebrate that you have one. He says, in, in Hindu philosophy, they say there's 60 billion billion souls waiting for a human body at any given time. Yogananda says it takes on average 8 billion lifetimes to evolve through the plant, mineral, plant, and animal kingdom to get your first body. If you look at it that way, and I could give you an explanation of that from a different perspective, but it's a metaphor, right? It's a it's a allegory. So if you look at it allegorically, not scientifically, then you realize no matter how you slice it, to be alive right now when you've got shit digital TV and awesome music and millions of ways to be creative and jet airplanes and, and space travel and I mean... How much more fucking magnificent does it have to get? <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you. And, and really, this is another thing that I've meditated on as well. Like if you're team soul and you're team God, you really want more opportunities for souls to experience the manifest, for souls to, you know, incarnate and be in the flesh. And if we fuck this world up, like there'll be other worlds, but man, that's a bummer because then there's however many billion souls, you know, I think there's 8 billion people now, but not only that, but all of the different plant life and animal life and everything just stops. If we stop life here and fuck it all up, well, it's just like one of the best game boards in the entire cosmos has just been removed. And what a, and, what a bummer. And it's a long fucking walk to the next planet you can live on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, you know, as Joseph Campbell says, when people are talking about, uh, you, you know, this experience of, of death, he says, do you realize that even moving at the speed of light, it would take you something like, he said, uh, 130 years moving at the speed of light, you still wouldn't have even left the Milky Way galaxy. <laughs> so where do you think you're going to go to get to heaven? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's crazy. Um you know, I, I know you've interviewed a lot of really interesting, uh, amazing people, and you continually do. I just wondered, is there any any highlights that just pop out in your mind that say, you know, you want to share and say this? If you're going to listen to one of my podcasts, check this out. You know, uh, coincidentally, where I'm recording this with you right now, there's a, a book called The Lion Tracker's Guide to Life with Boyd Vardy. And, uh, and that was a really great conversation. It's just kind of in the forefront of my mind right now. Uh, because I'm looking mm -hmm. at his book, but he's spent his time in Landalusi in South Africa tracking lions. And the wisdom that and the and the kind of the metaphor and the allegory to life about that he's gotten from that practice of tracking lions is 
really interesting. And it's, uh, I love talking to people who have experiences that are so different than the experiences that I've had, you know, like who knows what it's like to track a lion on foot and have to be, you know, following these tracks and then know that you may startle them and they may charge you and then what to do when they charge you and then how to respond and, and all of these different, uh, things that might happen. I mean, he's really been in there. He had a crocodile eat half of his foot and try to drag him in under the water. He's had, all kinds of situations happen. And, uh, and that would be a cool one, I think, for people to check out because it's something that, you know, we can only imagine what that experience is like and what the lessons that might come from that experience. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. Uh, is, is there anything that you'd like to direct the listeners to from, uh, you know, something you're doing or on it's doing or anything that you've got going on? Yeah. I mean, on it's, uh, on it's, doing great. And, um, you know, we're working our hardest to get all of the fitness equipment in stock. There's been like a worldwide shortage on kettlebells, but in a couple of weeks we'll have like a steady supply of those. So if you're looking to stock up your home gym with clubs and maces and kettlebells and ropes and Bulgarian bags, all those things, check that out. Um, obviously my podcast, you can sign up for my newsletter, follow me on Instagram. But, uh, other than that, I'm just going to be writing my book, but that won't be out until April. So uh, I'll definitely let everybody know when that comes out. But other than that, yeah, that'll be fun. Yes, it will. Yeah, well, shit, it's been great to catch yeah, up with man. you. Let me know when you can get over here. Uh, I th- I think we're coming to Austin for Sarah and Alex's wedding in October. I think they moved it to. So hopefully you'll you'll be there or be around so we can get together and uh, maybe do another podcast with each other or hang out or have some fun some way, somehow, because I'd love to see you in the flesh. Of course. And I'd love to have you on my show as well. So we'll find the time. We'll make it happen, brother. Well, it's been absolutely a juicy conversation, <laughs> no doubt, man. man. I, yeah, I, I love getting into all this stuff. And, you know, it's, you know, these are the kind of, these are the kind of conversations that, that make life rich. You know, it's like, you know, you, you think, if life is bored, just fucking hang out with Aubrey and have a chat. <laughs> Amen. Amen. I love it. So thank you very much for sharing with me. I'm sure my listeners have really enjoyed it. And I'm really grateful for our friendship. And, and I really look forward to having you together with me in the flesh so we can do the things we love to do. We got to paint again. No man. doubt. All the things, man. Stack yeah. some rocks, hit some paintings, drop in a ceremony, all yeah. the things. Yeah, yeah, you, you're gonna love this place, man. I got a beautiful new library and art studio, and uh, gorgeous views. And I mean, I I just think I'm I'm just like I'm so blessed. I wake up in the morning and I'm like, wow, I am living my dream so fully. It just I get daily reinforcement that all the work I've done to learn and learn to effectively manage my mind and use all the spiritual principles of manifestation are definitely once again, showing that they're real. And I'm just really inspired to let people know that God is unconditional love. And the answer to every prayer is yes. But the thing that the the discipline is learning to make sure that you keep your mind focused on what you want, not what you don't want, because we have a real habit in our culture of focusing on what we don't want, not what we do want. Mm. Well said. Well said. And you're a, you're a true embodiment of what the Toltecs would call the Nagual, the master who's holding the paintbrush of their own destiny and their own life. So it's just always a pleasure to be able to interact with you in, in every way possible. 
Thanks, buddy. Well, lots of love, and yeah, lots of love um, I look too. forward I look forward to enjoy the rest of your day and um, big hug. Likewise, likewise. We'll be in touch. Aho, aho, great spirit. It is done. It is done. It is done. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Aubrey Marcus. You can listen to Aubrey's own podcast, the Aubrey Marcus Podcast, available on all good podcast platforms. Follow Aubrey on Instagram or Twitter at Aubrey Marcus or find him on the web at aubreymarcus.com. Follow Paul on Instagram and Twitter at Living4D Podcast or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash Living4D with Paul Check. You can watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com and the Czech Institute's new streaming media site, chikiva.com. Thank you.